This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, welcome back. Today's episode is a good one. We're speaking about investigations. I find myself saying, we don't usually talk about true crime on the show, but I'm giving up on saying that anymore. Today, we have a fascinating story of a dogged, multidisciplinary investigation that started at an arson fire scene and ended nearly a year later with solving a homicide. Our guest is William Powers, a retired detective lieutenant from the Massachusetts State Police, and currently back with the department as the civilian training coordinator and classroom instructor. He has an extensive history of accomplishments in all phases of investigations and training. He recently published When the Smoked Cleared, a murder mystery in Malden. It's currently available on Amazon. I've got a copy. You got to take a look at it. As the title suggests, the story is about the investigation, arrest, and prosecution of a murder suspect. Bill was the case supervisor. And so this nonfiction story is written in a first person narrative from the crime scene through the jury verdict and a bit beyond. The book is uh, thorough and true to a fault. It is an excellent source as both a police and courtroom procedural, but there is also the heartbreaking yet inspiring story of how the victim's family dealt with their loss and instead of spitting out of control, found a way to succeed and thrive because of it. The book is written for those who enjoy reading true crime, but more importantly, it is a primer for college classes on police procedures, forensic fire sciences, criminal law and courtroom procedures, and some courses on deviant sociology and psychology. Wow, Bill, your resume, I could spend a a whole show reading your resume and your accolades. Well done, sir. Welcome to Policing Matters, Bill Powers. Thank you, sir. It's very good to hear from you, Jim. I I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and speak about this case. Yeah, well, it's our pleasure. Your book is about one particular case. Tell us a little bit about it. So it and, and it's about the one particular case because honestly in my career I probably had close to 200 homicides that I was part of the investigation of uh, whether as the direct you know um, case officer or as a supervisor and <clears throat> they all have some meaning in, in some more than others but no case had more uh, that stuck with me forever and from the moment we were not from the moment but early on in this case I thought somebody needs to write a book about this and as you know in our careers people constantly say hey you really ought to write a book and we always say yeah 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 but uh, this case just um, stuck with me and stuck with me and and um, even though it's 20 years later I've been working on it for six years and, and did a lot of work that led up to me even starting to write it so <clears throat> it's uh, it's one of those um it starts out as a, as a whodunit. It starts out um, with the Malden Fire Department responding to a small fire in the uh, function room of a, con- of a condo complex in their town. And when they um, um, extinguished the fire, which had pretty much put itself out um, because an overabundance of gasoline was used to start it and the sprinklers caught it. Um, but they um, 
The name of the book comes from, from what happens next when the smoke cleared, as they vented the windows, cleared the smoke and started to empty out the water. Uh, they started to notice what they considered something that was beyond their, beyond their realm. Um, they have a very good relationship with the detectives on the Malden Police Department. Um, and one of the particular detectives, John Rivers, uh, is a, an arson, arson specialist. He had actually trained the, the, the fire chief and the, the commanders there that when you have something that looks like it may be in criminal nature, then call us right away. John was on his way into work. He got a call and went there right away. And, and when he got there, the, the overwhelming smell of the gasoline led everybody to believe immediately that it was an arson. And John also has a great working relationship with the fire marshal's office for the state, which is manned and is investigating. Uh, arm of that is other state police officers. He called them right away. They came in. Um, they brought with them their, their accelerant sniffing dog, Lucy, uh, and uh, they together started to work the case. Um, there was some furniture tipped over um, and there were noticeable signs that appeared to be blood, but they weren't sure at that time. Um, Lucy, um, who generally is a very calm, um, finds an accelerant, sits down and gets fed, kept lapping away at the water. And um, her, her handler said to John, I don't know what's going on with Lucy. She generally just sits and, and waits. And the only time I've ever seen her lap up water is if there's either blood in it or, or some decomposition. And as again, as the water receded, um, the, the bright blood stains became more uh, more obvious. And at that point, they called my unit in to to work with them as a as both an arson case and a homicide case. Wow! And then so, you then you took it up running. Hey, so you're state police. Yes. And this happened in Malden, in in Mass. Mm -hmm. And. Is that a small jurisdiction? Why why the state police get involved? So Massachusetts, as I've learned, is is pretty unique in this uh, way of of handling investigate death investigations. By our by our legislature created statutes long before my time. They've been on the books for for, for at least fifty years. Um, and what they do is they 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 lay out the role of the medical examiner, and and that role is to be cooperative with the district attorney's office and the police, but also they control the body, the victim. <clears throat> they perform the autopsy. They determine cause and manner of death. The district attorney of each county, and we have eleven counties in Massachusetts, um, is in charge of the investigation and potential prosecution of sudden unattended deaths, primarily, obviously, homicides. Um, and so the third part of that is that, it, it, so he or she gets to name their investigators. In every instance in the Commonwealth, with the exception of Boston, Worcester, and Springfield, and, and Pittsfield, which is in far Western Mass, the DAs historically have given that responsibility to the state police. As a result, in every DA's office, we have up to 20 people assigned there um, to work on drug cases and other investigations, but their primary responsibility is homicide investigation. Mm. And then we work in tandem with the local police because the third part of the, the legislation is that we work in conjunction with the, the um, jurisdiction of law enforcement authority. Now, where I worked at the time in Middlesex County, we have 54 cities and towns. And in each one of those cities and towns, we are designated as the DA's investigators. So what we essentially have is a task force with every homicide, with every sudden unattended death. 
So it'll be the, the, the state police working with the local police in conjunction with the DA and the medical examiner. And it may sound complicated, but it's actually pretty simple. And in I can tell you from the 54 cities and towns I worked in, it was seamless. It was, and, and Malden is a very, just outside of Boston, um, it's a more of a, a, certainly wouldn't call it a bedroom committee, community, it's a thriving city. Um, we've worked with, with, at that particular year, I think we had three homicides that we worked in Malden with Malden. So we were all used to working together. We do our interviews together. We write report together so that there's no miss up, you know, mishap. And, and the other thing is, and this goes back, to at least 1990 when I started in Middlesex with the, the district attorney at the time, they send a DA out on every homicide to work with us. And I'll be honest, early on, people said, what do we need them for? What are they going to do? What are they doing? And I would say, look, would you practice all week for a football game and tell the quarterback to stay home and then bring them in at the end? I said, they're going to guide us. They, they have to present whatever we do as an investigation. So if I'm going to conduct a search, I want their input. If I'm going to conduct an interrogation, I want their input because of two reasons. One, I believe in them and, and, and their knowledge. And two, six months from now, somebody's not going to say to us, why'd you guys do that? You should have got a search warrant. Well, we all sat around the table and we discussed it. And we do. We sit around the table constantly and, and discuss these things. And it, it again, it works out seamlessly. And, and you'll see in, in, in the book, as it goes through, a lot of this book, more than just the actual investigation, is dedicated to presenting the case, a, a very difficult circumstantial case at trial. Um, and if we hadn't worked hand in glove with Adrian Lynch, who's the DA assigned to the case, um, uh, I, I, I know we wouldn't have got to the finish line the way that we did. Yeah, and I've got to say this with great appreciation, knowing your background, Bill, over 40 years in, in policing, you're you're an old war horse. Yeah. And, uh, you know, multidisciplinary investigations uh, tends to be a, a newer uh, realm of uh, investigation. And you come from the era of the silos, right, where we operate in our own separate little boxes and we get together at the end. That's really impressive that you guys have been having that kind of cooperation yeah not only with other departments and agencies, but the DA as well. It, it really has been, it makes you look forward to going to work every day. You know what yeah. I mean? It, it, as a friend of mine once said, I love what I do. I just don't always love what I have to do. Um, if, if that makes sense. And and I've never forgotten, you probably told me it 40 years ago, but it's like, I, I love going to work with the, with the guys that I work with. I love working with the local police. I love working with the DA's office. It was just always, and we still, we do a lot. We just did a training uh, about a month ago. and. Um, one of the protagonists in the book, who's Adrian Lynch, the DA, always comes and speaks, has never said no. Um, Duke Dunyu, who was the young trooper that was assigned to the case, now has my old job. He's been there for 20 years running the unit. And, and he's become an icon be because of the, the the success rate, which is which is phenomenal. The success rate in that in that office averages 95 percent a year. And and I think the national level right now is around 50, 55. Yeah. It's, yeah. But it's it, it's because of the working relationships that we all have. And and it goes beyond that. It goes into the forensic sciences. It goes to working with the crime lab people. Um, and in this case, um, what really became a big issue um, beyond the, the, the actual homicide investigation was the arson part of it. Because we developed a suspect, uh, I hate that term, a person of interest within the day. And he was a resident of the building and he was, he was a little bit quirky and a little bit dangerous and, and a, come to find out a lot more dangerous than people thought at the time. 
Um, but the, the, the troopers that are assigned to the fire marshal's office, they do hundreds of fires every year. But they also develop friendships with private investigators because those people come in on the civil end on a lot of cases, but, but they learn to work together. And in this particular case, there's a guy that's a, a worldwide uh, recognized expert um, volunteered for, for basically nothing to come on board and be our our key expert witness because it was the death of a young child, mm-hmm. as it as it turns out, without giving away the book, as it turns out. Uh, and he was so moved by that, he gave us dozens of hours of his time and was critical in proving to a jury um, that <clears throat> what, hap- what happened here is the person of interest fled with his family shortly before the fire alarms went off. He alleged that he was gone long before and we allege that the fire timeline on the fire, he was barely out of there when that when those fire alarms went off. So it was our experts versus their experts at the very end. And a lot of people might read and go, eh, what's all this stuff about the fire signs? It was critical because those minutes proved to the jury that he could have done this, uh, along with all the other stuff that we had to prove. Whereas if they believed the other experts, um, <clears throat> Um, then it put them out of the box. It had them long gone before the fire would have begun. Hmm. Yeah. And today we've got so much technology that really puts people in spots like an Apple watch or a Fitbit watch or Google tracking. That's all pretty precise. Um, But even though, you know, the innocence project and an appeals process will, will target those things um, just to put the doubt in the, in the minds of the jury. So, yeah, without going into the the actual uh, nuts and bolts of your case, I just want to ask you this. And, uh, you know, all homicides are important. What factor did the the age of the victim or or the the victim's profile? What what did that have in in your dogged pursuit of this case? Well, it it didn't really have much um, at all at the beginning because we had no idea. That was one of our biggest problems. We had. By the end of the day, we had a person of interest, Tommy Kraus, and we had no weapon. We had no victim. Uh, we had no motive. We had no eyewitnesses. And so there was a lot of that that um, we knew there was an awful lot of old time term gumshoe work that needed to be done. And we did that. But we had no idea that the victim would turn out to be who the victim was. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we we just Adrian Lynch. Um, so Adrian has been in the DA's office now for 43 years. She now heads the homicide unit. So this, this was 22 years ago. She is still there. She is still working hard every day. I talked to her last night, um, um, seven days a week. Um, and she doesn't let you give up on things. She just, no matter how much you may say, yeah, you know, we got all these other cases that we're working regardless. No, 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 no. We're going to sit, we're going to meet, and we're going to find out what are our next steps and how we're going to approach this. And she was, she was so determined. Um, once we, you know, began the investigation and realized who, who probably started that fire to at a minimum go after him on an arson charge that she continually worked with the, with the fire marshal's office to put together that arson charge. And then in the midst of all of this, um, is when, um, we discover our victim. Um, so, and at that point, a victim being of a young age, um, certainly ramped things up. Uh, in, in, in certain ways, um, more determined, I guess, than ever, not to say we weren't determined, but more determined than ever. And it creates you to do 
we went back and did a complete recanvas of everybody, everybody that we had talked to. And there were, there were 70 or 80 people that we had talked to because now we knew now, now we knew more than that. That was just an arson fire. And, and his, history tells us this, that, you know, you know, you, you, people will, maybe they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they don't want to talk to you. Maybe they saw something, but they didn't think it was that important. So they don't tell you. Maybe they saw something that they thought might be a little bit of importance, but they didn't want to put themselves in the middle because, Hey, this happened where I live. And I, I, you know, I can't, I don't know what's going to happen to my family if this person gets mad at my family. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you determine the outcome or, or the, or the vic- who the victim is, and now you go back and talk to people on a, on two, two particular occasions, people said to us, look, I, I, I knew more at the time, but I just thought, you know, the clown started a fire and took off. I, 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 I never realized that there was a death. And they did see things, not extraordinary things that they hadn't told us before, but enough that when you're trying to cement together a, a you know, 55 pieces of a puzzle um, and, and show the jury beyond a reasonable doubt the case, the two things that these guys brought forward helped. And, and there was a, a further one where uh, someone that, that Krauss had become friendly with and had been open with about what he had done um, was willing to testify on our behalf. He came to us um, because of, it was the death of a 14 year old girl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that if it's a, if it's two guys in a fight and somebody dies, maybe somebody never comes forward. You got a 14 year old victim leaves a family behind. There's a whole different thought process with a lot of people. So, yeah. Yeah, and your book, uh, you detail a lot in the actual uh, courtroom uh, as the courtroom case plays out. A lot of the story comes out, a lot of the investigative techniques. Um, Yeah, so I I recommend to the readers or the listeners, uh, get the book. Uh, You'll be intrigued by by the path that it takes. Um, Let's lighten it up a little bit. You told me a story before we started recording, and it's about investigations. And you and I share some things in common. And one of them is uh, I love the Boston area, love going out there. One of my uh, FBI, we both went to the FBI National Academy. One of my uh, classmates there, the president actually of our class, uh, Deputy Chief Artie Ryan from uh, Lowell, Mass. he was just the greatest guy. And uh, he, I, I totally understand you because of my indoctrination of listening to Artie speak. And it took me a while to, <laughs> to understand what he was saying, but because of his Boston accent, but uh, greatest guy. Uh, and you know, Artie, and you have yeah. a great forensic story or, well, an investigative story about Artie. No, Artie, as I as I mentioned earlier, we we all work together, and Lowell is the biggest city, I believe. If it's not, it's Cambridge, but I believe Lowell is the biggest city in our county, and they have a, a very um, robust, uh, good investigative uh, team, um, and they probably have four or five homicides a year, in, in, and so they they're well seasoned in, into cases. Artie at the time was running the um, the detective unit, and he had just come back from the National Academy, being your classmate. We had a particularly horrific uh, homicide of an 11-year-old girl that was found bound and gagged um, in the woods not that far from her home. And um, we were somewhat at our wit's end in trying to run it down. And, you know, we're talking about today, but when you go back to then, DNA was still 
it, I mean, DNA has been around, right? But but from a law enforcement criminal investigation point of view, it was something that was emerging. I mean, OJ was in 95. So when, when I had this case, uh, we had this case back in 2000, jurors at that point really weren't believing a whole lot in DNA and it, it plays a role. But in this particular case, again, the age of the victim played a lot. The fear in the city played a lot into it. We decided, and and uh, quite honestly, she came from a family that was um, dysfunctional at best. Uh, and um, we wound up, we, we, so the DA decided, why don't we get some DNA samples and see, because we did have DNA on the victim, um, <clears throat> the victim's clothing, if it was a member of the family or not. If it was, then we're in. If not, then we move on from on our investigation. So Artie says to us, hey, I took the behavioral science class down at the National Academy. And he said, one of the things they talked about is when you have a death, you know, in circumstances similar to the one that we have, you should take a look at the list of uh, suicides in, in the, that area um, around the time that the person was killed, because oftentimes somebody's conscience gets to them and, and they kill themselves. So I think and I'll be fair and say we all kind of rolled our eyes a little bit and said, all right, Daddy, you know, all right. I No, I get it. I get it. We're sending four down. We might as well send five down for, for testing. And we did. And and the, 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 the um, well, well, let me rephrase that. So there had been a couple of suicides in the Lowell area at that same time. And one happened about a week or so, a week, 10 days afterwards, uh, and there was a suspect, uh, sorry, not a suspect, there was a person who was found hanging in the woods. Um, and um, we had DNA samples from him. And so we forwarded them all down to, to the lab to have them, them tested. About two weeks later, we get a call from the lab and, and bring everybody together. They have results and we bring everybody together in the conference room. And they said, well, we, we have news. It's not necessarily the news that you expected, but we do have news. And we're all like with bated breath. What, what's the news? Well, the guy that was found hanging in the woods, he's your man. He's the guy that murdered the young girl. And we were incredulous to say the least. Adi's beaming and we're looking at him like, I can't believe this is happening. Right. Um, <clears throat> and what it turned out was in the, in the, the, the breadth of the investigation, two of the investigators went to the house of one of the classmates of our, our victim just to see, you know, uh, get some background on, on our victim. The, the guy that was hanging in the woods had rented a room in the cellar of this house. And he heard us come to the house and he thought we were looking into him as a possible suspect. And that afternoon, after everybody had left, he went out in the woods and he hung himself. So it's, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a, you, you got, you, you can leave nothing unturned. You have to go for everything. And had not, had not Adi had that, had not Adi not picked that up, you know, in the behavioral science class uh, and hadn't been sitting there with us. Um, this probably would still be an unsolved homicide. Yeah, amazing. Little doubt in my mind would be an unsolved homicide. Yeah, yeah. another yep. another tool of the trade there. Yep. Well, so much for lightening the mood after hearing that one. Uh, <laughs> I um, I want to get more into the actual crime scene investigation and uh, talk a little bit about that um, and the and the differences when we talk about things like an arson case that we're used to seeing. But first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, 
behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot com. And we're back, and I'm speaking with Bill Powers, retired detective lieutenant from the Massachusetts State Police, current training coordinator and classroom instructor, and now the author of When the Smoke Cleared, A Murder Mystery in Malden. Well, clearly, Bill, you recognize urgency in doing some first things first at this chaotic crime scene, this arson. You got the added dimensions of all the fire suppression damage. You got water, uh, lines, hoses, and, you know, so much for maintaining a crime scene. What were your priorities once you became aware that there was probably a death involved? And what was the cooperation of the other agencies, not just the other law agencies, but EMS, fire, whoever else showed up? Mm -hmm. Um, the cooperation was, was actually pretty remarkable. And, and I think everybody experienced in, yeah, if I have nothing else, I guess I have a lot of experience and, and institutional memory about, um, and, and, uh, a handful of unsolved cases that when I look back at them now, I shake my head about things that we could have and should have done. Um, we're also blessed these days with, as you brought up earlier, the kind of technology that we just didn't have back then. We didn't have cameras. We didn't have, um, you know, uh, door, door cameras. We didn't have GPS on our cars, all, all of that. Uh, fortunately, in this case, he did have a relatively new cell phone. And actually, in this case, for the first time in Massachusetts, we were able to bring in evidence uh, of from bouncing phones, you know, uh, off of cell towers that had never been allowed in mass courts. It had never been brought in before. So we kind of broke new ground with that. Uh, now it's done historically in every single case. But back then, that was all new stuff. But, you know, you're, you're faced with uh, um, um, trying to get your canvas done as quickly as possible. And yet after the fire, a lot of people went off to work. A lot of people took off because they didn't want to be in the place because it reeked the smoke. Um, and trying to get them and get their stories down because, as you know, from your years of doing this, that you can't contaminate that. You, you don't want to contaminate a scene, but you can't contaminate their, their thinking either. So the sooner you can get to them to get their, their comments, the better, so that they haven't like talked to five other people who had a memory that they didn't necessarily have, but they adopted that memory as being theirs. And you always got to work hard at avoiding that because that's a great place for the defense to, to sort of dig into things at a trial. Um, because we had a wet scene, crime scene, personnel could do so much, uh, but they needed a dryer scene, for example, to go after fingerprints um, and, and certain photographs to be done right needed that to process the chairs and the table. They needed to dry off. Um, we were able to collect a lot of the samples. The fire marshals, people were able to collect them. So the one thing about, uh, uh, I, I, again, I'm speaking for the state police. I can't speak for other states, but we do have an abundance of resources. And, and our crime lab is the crime lab for, for the state, with the exception of the city of Boston, who has their own crime lab. But everything else comes through us. And the, fi the forensic part you know, runs the gamut from drugs and, and, uh, and DNA and um, fire scene, arson, you know, invest and, and people with specific um, qualities do specific parts of the different cases. So in this case, we used the DNA, we used fingerprints, we used the photographs, we used um, the, the work that the arson investigators did on the accelerants. 
and then we brought in people that were specialists. Um, we did have a situation where um, Krauss had shown up at a gas station to purchase gas. And using the, I know you must have had these too, they run a camera in there, but they tape over the thing every third, fourth day. And so what you got is garbage. Uh, but we had that. And then there was a, a new a company called uh, Advid that came out with some really advanced technology. And we had a guy that was trained down at the FBI Academy on how to use that technology. And he could enhance that tape um, <clears throat> to a point that what looked was what looked grainy and terrible was, oh my God, of course that's him. So we were, we were blessed with that, that new technology. Again, that is technology that is now used all of the time. Uh, but it was, it was having that kind of knowledge from past experience to reach out, to, to, to talk to the right people, to bring the, the right people in. You know, I, I forget where I read the term, but I love it. it it's called um, situational humility. And, and I love to say, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not the brightest guy in the room. I never have and I never will be, but I'm smart enough to know who the smart people are in the room. So I can recognize that, that in a, at, a, at a crime scene, there's going to be DNA. I'm not going to find that. My job is to preserve that scene so the people that know how to do that, that are trained in that, can come in and do that. The same reason I don't want them doing the interrogations. That's, that's what we specialize in. But when you can bring people together and give them, oh God, authority, but also give them some self-esteem that they're part of our trial and they're an important part of our trial. It, it works out really, really well. Yeah, that's a new one. That's a new one. Situational humility. I guess yeah. it's check your ego is what yeah. it is. Exactly. Right? Exactly. You know, and that that is, a that, I think, and, and I know you headed detective units and you've got all kinds of characters sometimes in the unit. And when you're looking to put together a unit uh, and add people, um, there are certain qualities that people have that you really want as, as part of it. And it's something we can talk about now or later, whatever. But I think it's important to, to note. You know, the, the way units are put together and what people think about, you know, we're a bunch because they read the mysteries and they watch TV and they think we're a bunch of alpha dogs and, and lone wolves that set off on our own and, you know, bring the guy in by the scruff of the neck. It doesn't work that way. It can't, it won't work that way. And I, I go to the, that old comment, you know, individuals win games, but but teams win championships. And and that's the way I look at this. Right. You you may do good work on a particular case and good for you and you won and, and we're going to win that case. But you never should have done the things the way that you did them. And in a bigger case, if you screw it up, that whole case disappears. So we have to work as one and not as a as a group of independent, you know, contractors. Yeah, Bill, I I know I could spend another hour with you talking about you know your experience and and running teams and and training. Um, but we're going to wrap up pretty soon. I wanted to end with asking you to give give a little bit of. Um, advice to a new investigator new investigator just coming up assigned to a unit or assigned to general investigations what's what's your best advice for that new man or woman so i'll give the advice that that i wish i had had way back when um and and that is you're not the alpha dog you know there is plenty of help around you and again i can look back at some of my earlier cases and just shake my head and say i can't believe that I had that approach, but I was never told or taught differently. And so I like to think of it almost like you're merging onto a highway. You come on slow, you listen, you learn, you pay attention, um, and, 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 and gain experience. And then your game picks up and your game picks up. And then you become uh, acute to things and see things that you might not have seen before. So I, I think it's, it's important to, to, to note, A, don't get high on yourself, big on yourself. Hey, I'm a detective. Now, hey, I'm a homicide guy now. 
with that comes a lot of responsibility and you need to be willing to accept that responsibility that, that you're, you potentially are a 24 seven guy. Potentially you're going to spend time away from your family. Potentially you're going to get called out on Christmas day. So there's a lot that, that goes into it beyond just being able to wear the, the badge of a homicide detective. Um, understand that you, it's not about you. It's about a victim and it's about, about the victim's family. So we've, we've changed the way, for example, we do investigations in sexual assaults in Massachusetts. We call them victim-centered approaches. It used to be, I'm the detective. I'm going to get the guy that did this, regardless of whether the victim wants to go forward, regardless of whether the victim wants to do different things. But we, we, we now take this completely different approach of, of, of bringing the victim in as part of what we're doing and understanding that they play a big role in it, whether it's the victim or the victim's family in a homicide case. Um, and that historically isn't something that we ever did. And, and it wasn't it wasn't the easiest transition because some people, you know, we're the warriors and that's what we're going to do. And, you know, as you know, in this day and age, between the warrior and the guardian, who are we and, and all, we're a little bit of both. We're a lot of bit of both. And and uh, I think guys that, that are coming into it, male and female, need to have an understanding um, that they are one cog in the wheel, that we work with the district attorney's office or the county prosecutor's office, because ultimately they're going to take our case to trial. And they need to know, we need to educate them as much as they need to educate us. Um, another part is, I, I know, like you commented on my resume, I was a kid, um, I never saw the need for college. My dad was a Boston police detective uh, who who I dedicated the book to. I, I most unbelievable admiration. I never wanted to be anything but my dad. Uh, when it came to a profession, and um, he was always big on education, and I wasn't. Uh, I come on the, I, I quit college to go to get on the state police, and I very quickly learned you got to be smart in this profession. You can't, you can't come in, come in, and 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 you know it's not rough and tumble, roll them around, cuff them, you know, throw them in the back of the of the, the cruiser and get them in. Um, and I went back to school and I finished up, and then. You go to court enough and you get beat up a couple of times. And it was, you know, I, I, uh, I, I need to consider going to law school. And so I did. And, and so I, I, my approach on things all the time is understand the rules of the game before you engage in the game. Because as I say, the longest hit in the history of baseball, if it's six inches left of that foul pole, it's just a foul ball. The same with a catch in a football game. If your toe is on the line, doesn't matter. So if you can do all kinds of great yeoman work and you screw up on a search uh, or you screw up on an interrogation or an eyewitness identification, your case is gone. How do you then turn around to a family and say, I'm really sorry, the person that was responsible for the death of your child or, or, or your injuries or your sexual assault is going to be on the street because I didn't do my job. It, so it's, it weighs heavy on your shoulders. But if you, if you just kind of ease into it, it works out pretty well. And I will tell you from the other side, if you're going to be interviewing to be a detective, in my history, my experience as a boss, who am I looking for? I'm looking for somebody that blends, that 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 is a teammate and, and wants to play the team game, that's intelligent, that is willing to work hard and has a you know a, a track record, if you will, of showing that they don't just go out and ride around for eight hours and come back in and say that well, that's my shift. You know, and I know it's more difficult now than these last few years have made it more difficult in certain ways than it ever was before. But it's a profession that we choose because we want to help people. Don't let that the the other folks to get you off your game of why you wanted to be a police officer in the first place. So, I don't know. I can- that, that's that's great advice, Bill. And you know, you remind me of so many great uh, not just detectives but cops who 
you know, when I've seen them at the investigation scene, they let the victim or the witness or the suspect do all the talking. Mm-hmm. But when you get back into the office, uh, one of my investigative offices had 30 guys. It was the violent crime unit. And when someone like you started talking in that office, place got quiet and all you could hear were the chairs squeaking to turn to listen to that individual. And when we have people like that who reach retirement and walk off and, you know, grab that fishing pole or boat or whatever they get, that's it. But I think we need to be so grateful to people like you who stick around and go back and train the the new people. And Massachusetts State Police is lucky to have you do that and and share your experience with the, the new people. And Thanks I want to thank you. It's 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 been an honor talking to you and looking. Can't wait to finish your book. Um, when the smoke cleared, a murder mystery in Malden. Thanks, Bill, for spending so much time with us. You're more than welcome. And if people want to, that's a that book is available on Amazon. But I also have my own website, which. Um, I'm still working on. Um, I kind of put it to the side a little bit. Uh, well, to, to make sure I get the book finished. Uh, but there's a blog to it, and um, I, you know, I've got some some plans going forward. I'm, I'm, again, I'm not ready to retire either. Um, but that is a simple powers on policing, all one word, powersonpolicing.com, and um, you'll see more of my bio in there and, and more other other comments. But uh, Jim, I really appreciate that that uh, you asked me to come on and. Uh, um, uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. For sure. For sure. Right. Hey, take good care. Great All talking right. to you. You too. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Hey, and to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed listening to Bill Powers. Uh, you will learn so much more if you pick up the book, uh, When the Smoke Cleared, a Murder Mystery in Malden, uh, about an arson fire and the dogged investigation and the courtroom experience um, trying the case. Hey, let us know what you think. Drop me an email. Drop me a line at policingmatters at police1.com. Policingmatters at police1.com. I'm Jim Dudley. Hey, stay safe out there and hope to talk to you again real soon. Take good care.